an hour live. Welcome to the Service Design Podcast. My name is Lawrence. And I'm Miron de Pijt. And today we meet another special guest. Um, she's an award-winning designer and sociologist helping to pioneer the transformation to a sustainable and circular economy. She's a TED speaker, a UN champion of the earth, and a LinkedIn change maker. She's the creator of the disruptive design method, which combines systems thinking, sustainability sciences, and design as tools for creating a circular and sustainable future. She's the founder of the Unschool of Disruptive Design and creative agency Disrupt. We have here with us Dr. Leila Ajaralu. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's nice to meet you. We're here uh, in Copenhagen on the Service Design Global Conference, and you just gave a very interesting, very motivating talk as well. Um, could you maybe summarize in a couple mm -hmm. of sentences uh, what the what you talked about and what is the most important maybe takeaway? Yeah, so I was uh, encouraged to talk about activating agency within the design community to make change for the kind of challenges that we have in front of us. And for me, um, I was framing agency, which is from the psychology and um, sociology field. It's really about the uh, identity that an individual has of how much influence or effect they have on the world around them. And I think that a lot of people, I kind of laid the framework for why and how we've got a very uh, de-agentized community where people don't see the fact that one person can and does make an impact on the world around mm -hmm. them and how to, you know, basically activate that and find ways of introducing sustainability initiatives into our daily lives, but also into our professional roles, because whilst it's nice if we all do eco lifestyle things, it doesn't change the world the same way that people designing products and services for companies can help dramatically like reconfigure the economy. And that's really the goal. So hopefully kind of ruffled some feathers and got some people thinking about that. I think you've definitely ruffled some feathers during the talk. It was quite <laughs> provocative, but also quite, um, I found it quite positively encouraging to actually do something. You did have to skip a few slides on how to change things. Yeah. So maybe that's something we can yeah talk a bit more about. You've, well, you told us not to look. I have to be honest, I did look at the slides. And one of the things you showed there was, um, was systems thinking, systemic mm -hmm. design as well. And another a few tools of how to yeah tackle this mm -hmm. problem. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different ways to approach big complex challenges. Um, in the context of in, in sustainability and design, it's really important to understand impacts and impacts can be measured in different ways. And one of the best tools to understand the impact of our product or physical world is life cycle assessment or life cycle thinking, which is really about understanding the whole of life environmental impacts of a product system or service. It's got an ISO standard. And whilst there's the technical field of LCA, um, there's also the kind of more intuitive field of life cycle thinking, which is a tool of mapping and understanding based on um, materiality and, and, and the economy. And so it's a really useful insights tool. Um, and then, of course, systems thinking, which is about understanding uh, interconnection and relationships prior uh, to assuming that you understand a system and, the, and looking at the dynamics and how things flow and move. And these tools combined really do provide and a, sh a shift in perspective, which is one of the critical things that we have to, to kind of deal with is that, you know, the modern mainstream linear economy, it's extremely extractive and exploitative. It is something that worked for a very long time to, to kind of serve society. But now that we understand the impacts that we have with climate change and ocean plastic waste and biodiversity loss, and, you know, I don't want to 
bore you all with the challenges in front of us, but those challenges demonstrate to us that we have to change our relationship with nature and that requires us to change our value system in how we consume goods and services. And so we're really at a point now where it's no longer po- it really is no longer possible for companies or designers who work for companies to produce goods and services even digital products that aren't understanding their footprint and their impact so you know the last kind of tool would be um understanding the the impact of the operational side of the business and figuring out how to optimize the um, policies and procedures and practices within a company to ensure that they are actually um you know intentionally not uh disruptive sorry destructive because most businesses are not aware of their impact so it's like a first step it's like understand your problems so that you can start to solve them yeah that's so interesting and for me one of the um things you said as well is to really incorporate the planet or planet earth as a stakeholder mm-hmm. um and it really yeah piqued my interest there and can you give me elaborate uh, mm. on that a little bit and maybe show as an example of how you uh, applied that in some of your work yeah so i think this is a big big call that like the design council in the uk and you know many um pioneering companies like patagonia and whatnot have, have really shifted and said that we are very we engineered our values towards stakeholders that um that benefit from a system but not necessarily those that give to the system and nature gives us all of the resources that we need to not only sustain life and our own bodies like food air water blah 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 but also all of the raw materials for the economy and so it's kind of this like blind spot that we collectively have it's like people are very disassociated from the fact that your cell phone is made of minerals and metals and plastics all mined and extracted from the earth and when you are no longer using it and you don't want it anymore it has to be re like absorbed into the earth in some way and most of our systems of getting rid of trash is horrendous right we bury them in holes or we in the case of electronic waste over 50 million tons of e-waste is illegally trafficked around the world every year according to the UN and that means that you have people in you know fishing villages in Thailand processing your old keyboard or monitor or television and pulling out cadmium and and hazardous materials as well as the valuable materials like gold to resell them so there's this like a lot of inequity in the supply chain and the thing about the the question you asked about like nature being a stakeholder i think that fundamentally we've we've disassociated ourselves so much as a species from the natural world and i do not mean any of this in a kind of like hippy dippy kind of way there's a biophysical reality that all humans need nature and the very fact that we don't teach that nor discuss that is like the biggest blind spot um i i spent four years living on a farm i i personally realized i didn't know how nature worked and so i learned how to be an organic farmer and uh, i built a and restored a, an, an abandoned property in portugal and in i like every cell in my body was transformed as a result of growing participating eating consuming and being part of a, a cyclical cycle like that and it really struck me as how um the fact that we've moved away from having to produce our own food has really changed our understanding of natural rhythms and cycles and systems because like in nature there's no such thing as waste everything is the building block for new life and it's like such a dumb thing to have to say but it so makes sense and like i had all of these realizations on the farm which would be hilarious but be like oh right so that's why a tree drops its leaves in the winter time it's not hibernating it's actually just fueling the root base 
when there's enough moisture for the microorganisms to degrade the leaves because it no longer needs solar panels to make energy. It's now its energy is coming from the microorganisms in the soil that's then giving it nutrients so that it makes babies, right? So I get the completely different perspective on, on things that I'd been told, like trees drop their leaves because they're hibernating. I'm like, no, they're not. They're busy making freaking babies. So that really transformed my understanding of what it means to, um, you know, have nature as a stakeholder because we are nature as well. Like that's the reality. Um, but we don't see that. And so I think fundamentally there needs to be a big shift in our understanding as a collective species, but also just as a general conversation about where value lies in business. Like right now it's very normal for people just extract things, make them into usable goods, create waste, linear economy. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, it seems to be that companies have have gotten away with for a very long time extracting extracting value and selling it, but they're not taking any responsibility for those impacts, both at the beginning of life and at the end of life. And so like right now, we all bear the cost of bad design as consumers and as citizens of the world. So in the sense that, you know, most of our food products are now packaged in pretty obsessively, <laughs> like a lot of packaging. And, um, and, you know, we put that in the trash and then that trash gets shipped away from our houses. Um, but the thing is, is we pay for that. Like we pay for that service and it's expensive. Landfilling, incineration, recycling is all expensive. And so the bad designs made by retailers and product developers becomes a financial burden and a collective burden. Like we're running out of landfill sites. Only 9% of plastic is ever recycled. 20% of the world's waste is recycled. Third of it is wasted. It's like ends up in nature. Like the whole system is completely re inequitable at the point where we're, you know, people are being um, uh, kind of disadvantaged in the production because the value of the materials is so low. And then people in the, in the factories, as we know, and then of course us as like Western consumers who think, oh, my $10 toaster, what, what doesn't really matter. And then we throw it out and then somehow that has to be managed and dealt with. That whole system is fundamentally flawed. So when we talk about giving nature a seat at the table, it's really just about like fixing these like very obvious failings in our modern economy and finding ways to to rectify that. And that's really what like the circular economy is proposing and other kind of strategies around that. And that's one of the challenges as well. Indeed, what you mentioned too during your talk is externalizing costs. It's common What's practice. What's the word I used? It's nice. Eh? What's the word? Externalizing costs, no? Externalities is the technical term, yeah, but you yeah. defined it in the right way. So excellent. I'm very happy. The more people I can get to, to use the word externalities in common conversation, the happier I am. It's common practice. And the, the one of the challenges we face as designers is taking ownership of those costs because they are, in fact, external until you own them and do something about it. And maybe in your practice recently, have you seen like positive examples of how to do this, how to tackle this, mm. to inspire, yeah. So obviously like design is a very um, uh, diverse series of practices and obviously if you're in the service design, you tend to work more with concepts and, and digital, whereas if you're a product designer, like an engineer, you're working with physical and the supply chain is very different, you know. So I always like find it difficult to like talk to like you know, I mean holistically like we collectively as a design community, we need to change the way we we you know, do our job so that we do it with less of an impact for sure. But also it's difficult because if you're a service designer, um, you have a very different relationship to your client because you're often hired to give insights that then the business can turn into a profit 
by increasing the value proposition of the service to the customer, roughly. You essentially are saying, here's what the service is, let's do a better version of the service so that you're having better relationships. And I think it's like a naturally a systems model. The, the thing is, is that um, in this case, what we need to do is we need to figure out how to change the linear model to a circular one. So the big movement is what's called product service system models or products and services. And the service design industry is in a very unique position to be able to offer support in that because it's about understanding alternative business models. So right now customers, you know, buy a product, they get a, a receipt, they go home with the product and that whole waste cycle I talked about is perpetuated. But the proposition is that what if people buy the service versus the product, they still get the functionality. And as long as it's equi equitably given to them, like they're not being extorted financially, um, that then they can continue to gain that service in a frictionless way that then makes sure the company manages the assets that they've been responsible for putting into the world um, versus right now where they take no responsibility for those assets, whether it be a cell phone or a cup or a packaging, right? So the kind of concept is, so if you're in food packaging, as we're talking about that, it's like, okay packaging is important because it protects the product and it gives you it, it means that like your lettuce leaves don't go soggy right um so whilst packaging is important it's a it's a waste but if you then can transform that so you have reusable systems that then are you know um are managed assets they're they're monitored and there's a seamless experience for the customer or there's a service provider so you know we've now all gone to instead of going to pick up our takeout delivery and pizza we get it delivered by someone so why can't we have those reverse systems and they're the real challenges we have right now is the circular economy requires businesses to deliver value into the economy in different ways, eliminating waste and ensuring that materials are cycled through. Now, the only way they can do that is through collaboration. So working with the plastics producers so that they have high value, reusable packaging, um, and then designing those frictionless experiences for the users. So we have a lot of examples of this. Okay. So there's, you know, Loop, which is um, a, a project of TerraCycle um, and, and Unilever. It's a, it's a system of buying your groceries from major retailers in the US and, and Europe where you get your ketchup or your ice cream in reusable containers that then you can basically send back once you've used them. Um, you know, it's it's been rolled out. Uh, I personally tried to become a customer and then realized that it didn't sell any of the products that I actually use. So I didn't become a customer because I buy like different products. Um, and so that was an interesting thing for me. But I think that one of the key challenges is the normalization of the service model. And that needs to really happen. And I think that service designers are in this extremely unique position to be able to bring in these beautiful experiences that overcome those challenges. And I, I mentioned on stage, like I went to a hotel recently and they had reusable water bottles in the room, a really nice label. And they had these very sexy water filling stations where you could get seltzer or get hot water. And people in the conference were talking about how delightful the experience was. And that's the key thing. If we can just make these alternative service delivery models, addressing the need to eliminate waste from the economy, delightful and beautiful and cerebrally engaging. We can direct people to better lifestyle choices that are not inequitable and we can really truly address some of these big challenges that are in front of us. You've mentioned big challenges quite a few times. Do you think we have to take small steps, baby steps to enable that change, iteration, iteration, improve a little or should we go for a drastic shift on Monday? Well, it's a challenging question to answer because um, I have like a very dichotomic thought process on this because 
Like I, I've done a project with the UN called Anatomy of Action, which is all about individual actions and once they're accumulated, they have effects in the economy. So like the more of us buying stuff, you know, that is data that then a company would then replicate. So on one hand, individual actions do have an impact. Unfortunately, though, it's a scale, it, we have not seen the type of change that we need in order for individual actions. It's got the rebound effect, basically. So what happens is that there's this concept that if you if you get people to do small things, that it will they'll get on like a, a ladder of change, right? That like once they start refusing a, re, a disposable coffee cup, that they will then, you know. It gets a habit. Right. That's yeah. the perception. But there's a lot of data in the literature around behavioral change theories that doesn't actually reinforce that. So there was a very famous study many years ago called Simple and Painless, which it basically showed from a psychological standpoint and a sociological perspective that if you get people to do simple and painless actions that it, and it doesn't match the size of the problem, that they can't actually then uh, equate the two. And so they, they do these simple things and therefore they feel like they've done the right thing and then they do something worse, right? So then the, the, the money they save, they go and like buy a massive television or whatever, I don't know. So it's called the rebound effect or the spillover effect. And we saw that with COVID, right? When everybody was at their homes, the, the economy shut, we had this huge benefit from an environmental standpoint. And then the freaking rubber band effect. Once everybody, you know, could, they went and did all of the planet destroying things, were bought too much, you know, crashed the global supply chains. So I think that it's difficult to answer that question because any action is better than nothing, right? So inaction is a bad place to be. So action is always the desirable state. And we learn from our actions. And sometimes we take action and it's like, we, we don't get the best outcome. But any action is better than inaction, in my opinion, unless you're doing really terrible things, in which case perhaps reassess them. But I think it's difficult because we do need structural change as well. And you know, that's one of the areas I work in. I work with some of the world's biggest companies around transforming the DNA of their organization, the value um, center. And I do believe that we're in a shift towards a values-based economy. So give me, give, let me give you a couple examples. Um, Amazon had no climate policy. And a few years ago, their tech workers in Silicon Valley made a, 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 a like a – a petition that 10,000 of the workers signed and they went to take it to the annual general meeting, which was about Amazon taking action on climate change. And the CEO at the time, Jeff Bezos, refused to receive it. Um, and so then they started protesting and quitting work, like um, basically stopping work. These are the engineers, right? Um, in Silicon Valley, basically what's called workplace activism. They're like, we don't want to work for a company that doesn't align with our values. And knowing the fact that like good engineers are really hard to find there. It's an employee's economy. Like they're in a good um, position to say, well, like we're going to go and work for another company if you don't change. So he did, Bezos did. And they, that company then started to take action. So we're seeing shifts from within the company as well as external pressures. We have a lot of regulation in the European Union that is supporting companies in, well, it's forcing companies to report on their ESG, environmental, social and governments, um, legislation against greenwashing and ensuring that the green economy is happening. But at the same time, there are many structural forces. We know that things like the war in um, Ukraine is having a big impact on the decisions that governments are making around energy. So there's the thing is, is like, this is why I love systems thinking is because like there, I can see this whole map in my head. And for me, it's like, 
there's no blame in a system. Everything's complex and interconnected and dynamic and it's constantly changing. And so the one hope that I always hold is like, the thing is, is the future is undefined and it's actions today that create the future. And right now, like it might be pretty like bleak and shitty, but, and they are big problems, but the only way we address big problems is by, by challenging them. And sometimes it's a disruptive, complete flipping of the challenge. And then other times it's like a death by a cat, a thousand cuts. Right. So I, it's not simple for me to answer that question because it really depends on who and what and the context and who you are. If you're a policy designer, like dude, like make better policies. But if you're a designer, in your first year out of university and you're sitting in a big company and you feel powerless, like in that case, you need to find other people and ally and figure out what actions you can take. So, you know, it's like the big and the small, the macro and the micro, they work together. It's an interconnected system. And, you know, like I said, action is the critical thing here. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And I think the agency aspect and the responsibility aspect is there. It's, it's so important. Um, but when we're talking about um, uh, systemic design or systems thinking, I'm really curious. You also showed the slide of the iceberg, like this is just the tip and yeah, uh, below the, the water, like there's so much more such as governmental institutions, but also partnerships. Also but at the very bottom of like the that. iceberg model is mental models. And, and that yeah. is basically human concepts. And one thing I didn't share was this, you know, we live in a, a nested system of the social desires that humans create. So our desire for, um, you know, entertainment, for safety, for security drives all of the industrial productions, which all comes from nature. So these like nested systems create the context in which we live. And the idea of agency can, in part comes from one guy called Anthony Giddens, who's a, he has this proposition called the structuration theory. This is very nerdy for everybody listening, but hopefully you'll love it. So structuration, <laughs> yeah, structuration theory is like basically the system maintains itself unless agents within the system change it. Mm -hmm. Like it's such a basic, but it's structural forces exist because of the agents within the system reinforcing the structure. So it's like, we talk about this idea of, you know, we design the world and the world designs us. Agency is the exact same concept. Like if you perceive yourself to have no power, then you kind of manifest no power, right? Whereas if you perceive that your opinion is valuable and that you have the right to exert influence, then you, you actually kind of manifest that even though many people have structural forces that disempower them by default. So if you're of color, if you're a woman, if you're from an emerging economy, by default, the world takes some of your agency and gives it to the people who have all the power. But what I, as a woman sitting here can say to you, you know, like it's a miracle that I'm as educated as I am and, and get to speak to the world leaders that I speak to because 50 years ago, that was not possible, right? Like it has not been that long that people who look like me have been in positions of power and leadership. And so that change unto itself um, and the ability for agency to be distributed does give me a lot of hope, but I'm also very aware of the privilege that I have because for every one of me, there's hundreds of thousands of women who could be me or people of color or people who grew up in Iran who did not get the same opportunity to exert their influence and agency in the world. And that I wear that responsibility of being an agent of influence in the world because I would want someone like me to stand up for um, the de-agentized version of me. Does that make sense? You know, like I, I, when I was younger, I, I pen paled with a refugee in Australia. We have very terrible refugees problems. It's very horrendous. Our treatment of refugees, which is a global problem. And I, um, and I was very moved by the plight of 
other young people fleeing war-torn countries at the time. This was um, the war in the Middle East. And I, I pen paled with this woman. So in Australia, they like to put refugees in um, in uh, old, like, uh, what's it called? Like um, where the military used, like military bases, really unfriendly places. Mm -hmm. And this woman and I pen paled and she was my age. I was like 19 and I just started studying design and she wanted, I can't remember exactly what career she wanted to do something like she wanted to be a teacher or she was, but I just remember reading her letter and thinking she's me, she's me, but her circumstance is so freaking different. She's sitting in this, in the middle of the desert with no future in, presented in front of her. And I'm sitting here thinking like, what am I going to eat for lunch? And whilst of course I'm not responsible for her position, I have the opportunity to be um, very cognizant of the fact that I have a voice and I have the ability to use that in ways that unfortunately the structures, you know, and so I became a big advocate for refugees for many years. And to be honest, like it's still a topic I'm very, very um, passionate about. Uh, but I did kind of pivot to sustainability because I got to this realization that like hu human rights issues are very much connected to the fact that we don't value the, the world in, in, in the, in a way that makes sense. So for me, the fact that we devalue nature, that we torture animals for, you know, the factory farming industry, like all of these things are interconnected. And if we don't change our relationship to the systems that sustain life on earth, then we will continue to just find new ways of exploiting. And, you know, and that's kind of how it all kind of ended up that I got very into this because I felt like, I'm very fortunate to have the ability to speak and to articulate this and to, to be educated and to then be able to hope that my work as one human can help influence other people, give them agency and change some of these disruptive systems. Am I going to change the whole world by myself? No, right? But the fact that I am spending the power, influence and time that I have, I think is, I hope, inspires other people to find ways that they can do that too. What is your, because you've mentioned a few problems already and challenges, um, the fact that you love the problems we, we have in front of us, what is your maybe favorite problem? <laughs> uh, like it's a kind of like, like a, 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 a false question. Like what is my, like what do I love to, to be most traumatized mm. by? Yeah. I mean, I think the... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, I love, like, yeah, he's talking about, I have this slide where it's about loving problems. And I truly believe that if we learned to love problems, it would change our relationship to them because you get more inquisitive when you, when you go on a date with someone, you want to ask some questions and learn about them. And I think that that really changes our relationship to the issues. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I, I have a lot of um, uh, things that I'm very passionate about. And I think that, that waste, like, the travesty of waste and I don't just mean like solid waste like plastics and stuff but just we waste human labor and value and we just waste so many things and the concept of being wasteful versus being appreciative and resourceful I think is a is a huge like sticky shitty problem that we need to address because I find it so tragic like you know when COVID hit and everyone went and hoarded toilet paper it's kind of connected to the same psychology of like scarcity and abundance. When we're confronted with a lot of resources, we become wasteful. And when we are, when we are, there's a, a resource scarcity, we become selfish, 
right? And so I'm like, what's in between that? (laughs) You know, sustenance, like where do we get to a point where where we appreciate the the resources that we have so that we don't waste them, but then we also enjoy them. So I'm like, what's that sweet middle spot, right? Like that's kind of the the challenge, I think, with this whole waste crisis and we have a waste crisis, right? Like it's phenomenal. You've named it. It's appreciation. It's appreciating what is in front of you and but just because you appreciate something doesn't mean you're going to like savor it and and be respectful of it, right? Like mm. I think for me, we have also no respect. We lack respect for nature and therefore the products of nature. So the materials, plastic is from nature. Everything is from nature, right? So we kind of it see things as like the very fact that we've we've designed disposability into our entire system makes it very easy for us to waste things. And, you know, recycling, which was the Band-Aid solution, actually just encourages the production of waste. So what happens is like like globally we only recycle 9% of plastics, 20% of solid waste globally is recycled, um, a third of it ends up escaping into nature and that's how we end up with issues like ocean plastic waste. Um, and then the other third is like managed, meaning it's like collected and put in a hole in the ground or burnt for energy. <laughs> Basically... The things we do, and it's crazy because the rate of production of waste has exponentially exploded. And so, you know, that's the problem is is that we the, the solution we've put in place has reinforced the problem. Like it's created the ability to make more waste, which is just so dumb, right? Like it's just why are we doing this? Because we're running out of these resources – we, well, okay, like we could probably continue to pull plastic out of the ground for another 50 to 100 years and we wouldn't necessarily run out of petroleum, but copper, helium, um, you know, rare earth metals, uh, all of the stuff that we're going to need to convert to an electrified vehicle market, like this shit's got to come out of the ground, people. It comes from nature. People have to mine it. There's all sorts of environmental impacts in that, not just the land that is destroyed, but also all of the tailings and the carbon emissions. And it's like we are addicted to disposable stuff and our addiction to disposability and the fact that we've normalized being able to disassociate and just waste things and not see any consequences is like a fundamental flaw of our species. And for me, I'm like, we managed to make such amazing things like our technological innovation where we're at it's like amazing we live in despite all of the problems the safest time in all of human history life expectancy is the longest it's ever been right it's amazing so why are we still like just so blatantly wasteful and ignorant to those systems that's the challenge and i think that we have so much opportunity to change that I mean, that's what I try to do is give people the tools and help them hopefully see that this is like an amazing career path to do what you love, if that's design or if that's whatever you're doing, but to also then bring into that this kind of like, here's a big challenge. Humans are wasting the resources that sustain life on earth. And if we perpetuate this, we're going to basically be eating our own shit and it's not going to be useful. So like, what what can I do to change that? Like that's, you know, so for me, that's the problem. (laughs) It's for for you, like what what can I do? Is that also the starting point? Because I can also maybe imagine that it's such a big problem, such a big challenge that for a lot of people, there was talk about fear, but not necessarily fear, but also like it's, it's going to be daunting to, to tackle to, it. To and start. What, what role yeah. can I play? I'm really curious, like um, where, where is for you the, 
the starting points to take. Well, I like to talk about the ecological footprint methodology because it's an internationally, um, you know, very well-respected method that enables anyone to go online and check their personal footprint across their consumption choices. And it helps you realize that based on where you live in the world and your availability to resources, you will have a bigger or smaller footprint and um, collectively we use 1.7 earths every year. But for me, like when I was in like um, first year university, I did it and I realized I did it and I got like six earths, which is like it tells you how many earths. I lived in Australia. Australia burns brown coal. So all of our energy mix in Australia is really bad Um, and the energy mix will influence your heating and cooling and stuff, right? So um, I – but I went back into the beginning and I was like, what do I need to change to get to one earth? And I was one of the simplest and easiest things I could do was to reduce my meat consumption. And um, the thing is, is that people often ask me, like, what's the one thing I can do? And actually all the science shows over and over again, you can dramatically reduce your meat consumption and we will have significant environmental and ethical benefits. But people don't want that. And I also find it challenging because historically sustainability has always been about giving something up rather than getting something new, which is why I have thought that like a lot of the kind of alternative meat companies and the way they've tackled the problem to like normalize this like non-animal protein, but still make you know, these kinds of foods that people want to eat, I find that as a really interesting intervention point, not everybody, it doesn't work for everybody. And unfortunately the stock price on many of these companies has started to fall. But I think that it shows that we have like, we have to think about, it's not about giving up. It's about like, we talked about like kind of appreciation, but also value. It's a value change. Like the shifts that need to happen is we collectively need to realign our value to understand that everything that enters our lives, lives, everything we do, it comes at a cost. And that cost right now is delayed to the future. So like the ecological footprint methodology, I think is a really useful tool for individuals. And I mentioned this anatomy of action, which is basically the opposite. So it's your hand and, you know, you can find out your footprint and then you can take action. Um, So that's anatomyofaction.org and the UN, you know, uses that with a lot of young people to help them see what choices they can make. But I think that if you're a designer and you're listening to this, um, I think the most important thing to think about is like what knowledge gaps do I have around this stuff? Fill those knowledge gaps as best you can and as quickly as you can. And, you know, um, not to be like plugging, but the unschool has that I made unschools.co has a lot of resources. We have a lot of free resources that are designed for exactly this. We have an entire toolkit called the superpower activation kit, which literally talks you through the thinking shifts that help you understand your role in the world and how you can make better choices around your professional and personal life. Um, and then I think the other thing is, is like once you fill your knowledge gap, once you've then to take action in your workplace and that is to find the best way to encourage your colleagues, your bosses, your clients that this is the action and it it does often isn't about like telling them about the problems. It's often about showing them a better future. And, you know, that to me is one of the coolest things. Buckminster Fuller said, you know, there's no point investing all of your energy in fighting the existing system. If you want to change something, design a new system that makes the old one obsolete. And that's the like operating philosophy that I go on. So, you know, when it comes to meat, for example, 
I wrote a vegetarian cookbook because the called Hero Veg, where it's like flick the script on your understanding rather than like I have to give up meat. Like what if I just had delicious vegetables? You change your relationship and you change the concept and therefore you change your perception and your engagement and your value. So it's really like a lot of it comes down to mental models or mindsets or worldviews. And so, yeah, that's kind of like we all have the power to think differently about the world we live in. And so, yeah, it's really just a process of getting there. Positive wo words of encouragement, actually. Thank you, Leila. It's um, it's good to have you here with us in the studio. Great, uh, thank, thank you, you so so much for uh, for coming here uh, and uh, and having this uh, this amazing interview. Um, and uh, let's uh, enjoy the good food here. At yeah, the great, excellent. Thanks for having me.